There's a lovely science of mind tradition that, that we fall right in line with, and that's going back to basics every year. And to do that, we use the first four chapters of the Science of Mind textbook. For those of you maybe who haven't looked at the Science of Mind textbook before, I thought I should say something about it, kind of do a, a brief, uh, I don't know, explanation or endorsement of it or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but you know, the book itself does a lovely job of that. If you have the edition that Jean Houston wrote uh, the foreword for, she says some lovely things about it. And so I thought I would use her words. So this is uh, Jean Houston's writing in the foreword of The Science of Mind. This modern luminary says, How can we deal with a world in which everything that we have known is changing at so rapid a pace that we are caught between the dangers that threaten us and the opportunities that beckon to us? Educated for demands of a different time and culture, we are called to re-educate ourselves to use much more of ourselves in meeting the many challenges that confront us. The science of mind says that this is not only possible, it is what is expected of us. Indeed, it is that for which we have been created. For the first time in human history, we are required as a species to extend ourselves into radically new ways of being. The tasks that are now ours, the tasks of virtual creation, compel this revolution in consciousness that tells us we are part of a great unfolding of spirit in flesh. These are the times. We are the people, and this is the book that can help us do it. So where do we start? Well, you know, I think a discussion of uh, anything spiritual probably deserves to start with the idea of God. And, uh, and of course, there's a danger in this. You tell a, a minister to talk about God, and it can end up being a very long Sunday talk. So I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm going to keep it within the, the frames of, of science of mind. But, but, you know, trying to describe the infinite is a little bit tough, unless... Maybe you're seven years old. A mother found her little boy with a pencil and paper making a sketch. When asked what he was doing, he answered very promptly and with some pride, I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, his mother said, you can't do that. God is infinite. God is in and as everything and everybody. God's beyond the possibility of pinning down or categorizing, defining, measuring, or objectifying. Sounds like someone who's been to church here too much, doesn't it? <laughs> but she sums up by saying, nobody can know what God looks like. Well, the little boy replied, looking at his picture, they will soon enough. <laughs> and I think that is the good part to start, a good place to start. And that is the, the personal nature with which we have God. I, I mean, if you go to most any church, you'll hear people talk about God with the three omnis. And those are omnipresence, the idea that God is everywhere present, omnipotent, meaning that God is all-powerful, and omniscient, meaning that God is all-wise. And, and so when on Sunday here we say God is all there is, that's kind of what we're getting at, right? God's everywhere. God's everything. God is every person, every place, everything, every situation. It was all that's created. And perhaps uniquely in science of mind, we say it is also what was created. So if you think about it, if what would be all wise and everywhere present 
and all-powerful, well, it would have to be the all. It would have to be the thing itself. It would have to be all of creation. So rather than that idea that some people have of, of God as the master creator that created everything and then kind of gingerly stepped away and kind of hid behind a curtain and, and to peek out and go, well, I wonder how things are going. We believe that God is here, right here, as us, with us, a part of the glory of everything that we see and do and experience, and, and certainly we are a part of that as well. So that's our idea in the science of mind is what God is like. But Ernest Holmes doesn't stop there. That's where he begins this chapter. He begins very carefully in describing God in as big a terms as possible, really to encompass much more than what most people think of as God. You know, most people have that kind of little funny idea left over from, from our childhood of God as kind of the guy with the beard in the sky and the, the, you know, the heavenly father kind of thing. And I think Ernest Holmes does a great job of saying, you know, that's just, that's just back. That's, you know, that's another era. Today, if we really want to recognize God as all there is, we need to step up to something that's a little less human looking, a little less male oriented, a little less of that energy of control and domination, and more about love, more about participation, more about us as part of God, not just that God in the sky. So I think he does a lovely job of that, and I hope some of you will uh, stay for the afterwards program and we'll have perhaps a longer discussion of that. But what Ernest Holmes does, I think, more fundamentally, more famously, is that he begins talking about God in a different way. He says, not only is there this thing, this unimaginably large, this, this vast, this infinity that is God, but God is also how we approach it. And he talks about it in terms of this concept, this twin concept of love and law. So let me read to you as he introduces this concept. He says, We do well to listen to the inner voice of God, for it tells us of a life wonderful in its scope, of a love beyond our fondest dreams, of a freedom and connection which the soul craves. But this great love of the universe must be one with the great law of its own being. And we approach love through the law. This, then, is the teaching of the science of mind, love and law. As the love of God is perfect, so the law of God is also perfect, and we must understand both. All right, so that's a little bit of science of mind jargon here, and I want to talk about that. Um, the idea of love, you can think of it. it. Well, in fact, I encounter this a lot on Sunday. People will now and then come up to me and say, you know, I wish we did a little bit more spiritual practice together. Uh, especially sometimes them, some of the folks that come to the second service, and I suspect they'd be happier in the first service where we have a meditation and we do a little bit more group spiritual practice. Or I hear, hear people say, you know, what I love about this center is the close personal connection, really a, a connection that I have with God that, that, um, that this place has helped me foster over the years. And what they're really talking about, I think, is the love aspect of God, that connection to something that is larger themselves, that one-on-one that -on -one relationship that each of us has with our divine power, and however we define it, too. We don't have to go by anybody else's idea of what God is or, 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 or what the divine is. It is our 
heartfelt sense of connection to and participation with that which is divine. And so Ernest Holmes specifies that this is the love aspect. This is how we approach God as love. But he also introduces then this idea of law. And to him, law is represented by those things that we call spiritual principles. And those are the things that work equally well for everyone. It is the the way in which our, our word is manifest into the world. It is the way in which we approach the outer works of God in the world. And, and a lot of other religious training, of course, tells you about how we're to show up in the world. You know, we're to, to treat each other as brothers and sisters. We're, we're supposed to sow as we wish to reap, right? There are a lot of, uh, whether it's in science of mind or other religions, there's also this outward context of God, how we're, how we're to be in the world based on spiritual principles. And if you hang around here a little bit, you'll hear things about like the, the law of cause and effect. You'll hear about the, the law of attraction. You'll hear about the law of mental equivalence. And, and you know, we'll cover those in, in other weeks, but there is that outward way in which we interact with God that's called law. And it pretty much works the same way for everybody, just as other laws work. So Ernest Holmes, I think, is interesting in that he's very clear that one or the other of these is not a good way to approach God. And sometimes you'll see this where someone has gone overboard one way or the other. So an example of someone who's maybe gone overboard on their approach to God just as love would be the ascetic who's like living in a cave somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Who is so focused just on that... um, devotional aspect of love of God that the whole world passes them by. Um, Really, they're content in their meditation, in their contemplation, in their their one-on-one expression of of love and and spirituality that they would never have to leave the cave, if, if you know what I mean. And of course, the cave may be more metaphorical. It could be the confines of their own living room, right? But the idea is, so in love, if you will, with God, that it's entirely an inward journey. Now, I think there's a minor mistake here, or a misstep, if you will, in that I think we were put here on this planet, in these bodies, with each other, with all this stuff going on, because we are a spiritual being, but we're in human form. And so I think that the ascetic that, that has that very solitary relationship, as loving as it is with God, is also missing just a little bit of the equation here, because I think we're here for a purpose. I think we have these bodies for a reason. I think there's more to it than just the inward journey. Now contrast that with someone, though, that's all about spiritual practice and has no time for meditation, has no time for that inward journey that would lead them closer to a heartfelt sign of God. They simply want to know more about the spiritual practices. And we get those people in here, too. Sometimes I'll hear people say, oh my gosh, you know, do we have to do this rose ceremony? And, and do you know what I mean? It's, it's like, let's not do meditation. Just you know, give me a short class on how to use the law of attraction so that I can bring more joy and more peace into my life, you know? It's like God will take care of God's self. I want to know how to use these spiritual principles so that I can make a better life for myself and for my family. Or I will hear people say, you know, why aren't we more involved in outward affairs like doing a soup kitchen for the poor or, or doing more of God's work in the world? And I would say the people who head down that path a little bit too far 
end up reaching some of their goals in the physical world, but they're still not really happy about it. They're still not really connected with the one power and the one presence. And so either love on its extreme or law, you know, using spiritual principles to make a difference in the world, at the two extremes, I think we're out of balance. And so for my part, and I know I, I talked to Reverend Sharon about this a little bit earlier, you know, you're going to get a balance from us. We're going to be aiming in the middle here because Ernest Holmes says, and we believe, that it is through love and the law that God really is made apparent in the world. It is through the combination of our inner devotion, our inner um, heartfelt sense of who we are as a child of God or, or, or as a, a, a connection, a unique and personal connection with God. It is that coupled with our knowledge of using spiritual principles to bring about a better life for ourselves and the people around us. It is that combination that honors us as a spiritual being in human form. Then we're starting to take care of both elements of what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be human. Then we're, we're doing our work, we're doing God's work, and we're connected in such a beautiful, such a powerful, and such an intimate way. This is what Ernest Holmes talks about when he talks about love and law. But that doesn't mean that there, we're talking about two gods here, right? It's not like you uh, approach God A <laughs> with devotion and love and, and personal interest and God B <laughs> with spiritual uh, practice and principle. No, it's really part of what makes each one of us unique. How we approach this dance of life with our higher power is unique to each of us even as I challenge each of us to make sure that it has components of both love, that introspection, that, that ability to be in meditation, that ability to be in contemplation, as well as bringing that forward into life in the world through spiritual principle. So as we're going to work through the rest of this month, I think we're going to see a compelling picture of what it means to be deeply connected to God and also to use the power of God in our own lives to bring about something better, something more extraordinary for us, the people we love, and the world as a whole. This is taking God in a, in a holistic fashion, I think. So I'd like to summarize today with a, a final reading. Um, it's the end of this chapter, and, and it's a lovely way, I think, to end it. Um, Ernest Holmes here talking about trust. He says, When we learn to trust the universe, we shall be happy, prosperous, and well. We must learn to come under the divine government and accept the fact that nature's table is ever filled Never is there a cosmic famine. The finite alone has wrought and suffered, but the infinite lies stretched in smiling repose. God is always God. No matter what our emotional storm, no matter what our emotional situation may be, there is always something hidden in the inner being that has never been violated. Yes, we may stumble, but there is that eternal voice forever whispering within our ear, that thing which causes 
the eternal quest, that thing which forever sings and sings and sings. This is the thing itself. Let us pray. There is one power. There is one presence in this universe. It is that which is all. This God, this, uh, this higher power, I know that it's present everywhere. I know that it's wise about all things. I know that it is infinitely powerful in its scope. And I also know that it is personal. I know that it is indwelling in me right now and that that, that part of the universe that has particularized itself as Reverend Larry right in this moment is speaking. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room. Each person here is a centralized and individualized part of the one mind, the one spirit, the one God. And so therefore, I know that each one of us has the possibility of expansiveness, that each person here is within themselves capable of the power, the presence, the joy, the love, that anything you can conceive of in God is present for each person here. This is the nature of God as both the infinite and the personal. This is the nature of God as both love and law. And I am grateful for this. I'm simply grateful for the awareness that each person in this room perhaps will use this week to uh, expand their own ideas of what God is. Grateful in advance for knowing that each person here is ever more present to the potential of God within. And so I release this prayer. I release it into the activity, into the action of the law itself, knowing that it is good, knowing that it is complete. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thanks very much.